days I knew as happy, sweet, sequestered days, olden days, golden days, days of laughter, days of love, youth was mine, truth was mine. Joyous free this time of life always mine sad am I glad am I for today I'm dreaming of yesterday Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, December 18th, 2022. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His new book, The Book of Broadway Musical Debates, Disputes, and Disagreements, is now available and can be purchased wherever finer books are sold. Peter has columns at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. Hello. So if you'll give me some latitude here, I, I just wanted to rant a little bit about ticket prices and and Lady stuff York, go right ahead <laughs> yeah uh, so uh bono is coming to new york to do this one week thing at the beacon theater in like april may or june or something like that um where he's gonna sing a little bit and talk a little bit sort of like the bruce springsteen thing and it's touring around the united states and i guess around the world but my wife wanted to see it and so i went to Ticketmaster to purchase the tickets and the tickets directly from Ticketmaster, not through brokers, start at $700. Hmm. Oh, my God. So I don't want to hear anybody say Broadway's too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> I, You know, I mean, the highest of premium tickets mm. uh, at, at, you know, the hottest shows at Music Man or something like that don't even approach that. That's what I always, I mean, I do always say that. And then don't forget sporting events too. And now, sporting events are, you know, very, very expensive. Although you can still get, you know, a $50. Yeah, but that's because they're $50. Yeah, $50 oh, seat yeah, yeah. at Yankees. But yeah, yeah. but certainly wow. uh, Knicks and Rangers and things like that, you're not touching anything for, you know, under 100, 125 bucks. There's no rush, <laughs> rush tickets for, uh, for the Knicks and the Rangers or things like that. But uh, whenever people talked about how expensive, uh, you know, Broadway is, I, I just have to say it's, it's still a tremendous bargain, a tremendous value. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, oh, for certain shows, you know, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> Everything's uh, relative. It, sure it, is. it really is. But I mean, the, the Bono start, the Bono seats started at 700 bucks and mm. went into the $3,000, $3,500 range mm. directly from Ticketmaster. It's not the reseller's market or anything like that, which is, beyond amazing over and above yeah, that and we had the sure. the story about 
Taylor Swift tickets uh, a couple of weeks ago through Ticketmaster were uh, was a disaster and an enormously expensive. So, uh, what you know, did you say? The, uh, what What is the venue for Bono? Uh, the Beacon Theater. Beacon. Oh, okay. Because if yeah, I mean, if it was at Madison Square Garden, it might be a little less expensive. Yeah, yeah. Because you want the, they have the intimacy the of the cheap, Beacon cheap, Theater. Cheap, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of which. Um, uh well it just led me to think that we uh didn't mention about the Tony Tony's yeah, yeah moving to the United Palace mm. which have either of you guys been in that theater no no i haven't no they invited me up yeah they invited me up to it during their opening last year or 2 years ago or something like that uh and i haven't been up there but um it's but quite they, wonderful it's, oh you have you know, you've been there yeah yeah i uh you know lin manuel uh miranda is very very um active in it uh and he used to do i don't know if he still does this thing where he would show movies mm, uh, yeah. uh and musical movies <laughs> uh with um spanish subtitles oh. and <laughs> then and then he would also have his his friends come and perform songs from the from the, from the movie uh like before it and the one i saw was guys and dolls i'm, I'm sure i talked about it at the time Karen Olivo was one of the performers and Chris Jackson and the, that whole group. Uh, this was um, after uh, In the Heights, but before Hamilton. Hmm. Uh, and so anyway, I th- but I think he's, he's still very heavily involved in there. And, and some people think that's one reason why that's where it ended up. Rob Johnson, uh, Rob Johnson in our chat room is mentioning that he'd been there for some In the Heights concerts a few years back and that hmm. uh, and that the movies, the movie musicals are done for the year, but uh, they said that they would be back. Oh, okay. So, great. Uh, great. Great. You know, and the, I think another one of the reasons that they're talking about it, because I, th- I think it's a very, very large space is 3,000, 3,500 seats or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they can, you know, it's not, you know, one of the things about Radio City Music Hall is not only the iconic nature of it, but it's so big that you can get, uh, sell all they, those tickets you know <laughs> well a large amount of the broadway community can actually attend you know yeah. it, it's you know it's nothing worse than being in the in the chorus or uh of a nominated show or even like working mm-hmm. on a, a stage crew working on a show and they can't go to their own tony awards you know that's one of the it's like going to the dance you know <laughs> i also so, think it's a, it's a, it's a type of move acknowledging diversity and oh think, sure and i think that's uh, an important part of it as well and um, that's great yeah so the tony awards is going to be they made that announcement this week that it's uh, uh they start to get the spring schedule all ready here uh let me see what the official day was it june 12th or i forget what it is off the top of my head and of course, the Tonys were at the Beacon for how, how yeah. many years? Yeah. One, or, one or two. Yeah, a couple and, of years. And now the United Palace. So where are they going to be next in Yonkers? <laughs> <laughs> they will be lost in Yonkers. June 11th. June 11th is 74th annual right. Tony Awards. Right. Uh, and so at the United Palace, which uh, uh, we had to, all, all of the Broadway websites right. that track everything, that's we had right. to add the United that's Palace right. into our into our repertoire of theaters there. So that's great. Uh, and looking forward to that. So um, first up, the three of us 
Uh, we all got over to the Sam Schubert Theater <laughs> to see Some Like It Hot. Um, so, Peter, why don't you get us started on this new musical? Well, sure, it's a new musical. Uh, it's it's amazing the history this property has had. Mm. I mean, it started off as a French movie called Fanfare of Love, and then it became a West German movie called Fanfares of Love, and then it became Some Like It Hot, and then it became Sugar, a musical, and then it became Some Like It Hot, a musical. No, not the one we have now. It's just they retitled the show uh, of Sugar to Some Like It Hot, and um, it played in London. And then there was a production uh, that Tony Curtis brought out um, about 20 years ago uh, that toured, never made it to Broadway. Uh, Tony Curtis, Curtis, of course, was um, the original Joe, um, Josephine, in the um, movie, but he became Osgood in the uh, tour. And um, and Sugar was um, certainly not a top-tier musical, and it was very lucky to get 505 performances out of it. So um, the idea of a new Sum Like It Hot seemed like a good idea because uh, it's uh, it always shows up as uh, one of the funniest movies of all time. It always shows up um, having one of the funniest last lines of all time. So um, so why not try it again? Uh, I, I wish I could be more enthusiastic about it, uh, but I cannot. Um, for one thing, my heart sank when it seemed, seemed that we were going to see a unit set all night. Because the curtain went up, and um, there was the standard type of set you saw in Jekyll and Hyde and Evita, uh, with the two staircases going up to a balcony level, and um, very Art Deco, very pretty. But I mean, I thought, oh, they're going to do it all on a unit set, and you know, whatever you want to say about Sugar, at least there was one set after the another after another. As it turns out, something like it hot. This one uh, has a lot of sets too, but it doesn't look like it's going to be that way at the beginning. All right, so. They're really um, going in a different direction here, which I thought was very smart. I always thought it would be very smart if indeed um, uh, Jerry slash Daphne, for about 10 seconds, he's Geraldine. But (laughs) anyway, um, if indeed he had been a secret transvestite, because um, that way it would be much easier getting the clothes. They don't go in that direction. But here's a person who says early on, and it's a smart um, line. Something's missing for me. And he can't quite put his finger on it. So a little later when he's dressed as a woman and they're in the train compartment, um, they have to um, jump into a a restroom to avoid detection. And the way he looks in the mirror indicates he likes what he sees here. And uh, that's significant as well. So we have somebody here who has um, found that he has something missing and he likes the way he looks as a woman. So maybe this is his destiny. Great. I think that's terrific. And um, I thought that was a smart move. However, once he um, is pursued by Osgood and once he really takes to the idea of being pursued by Osgood and not just because Osgood is um, uh, pretty uh, big with the gifts, but he can tell that Osgood really, really likes this person. He never worries what's going to happen when Osgood finds out he's a man. And it would have been so wonderful if at the end, mm. when he says, um, actually, I'm a man, if Osgood specifically said, I knew it all the time, they leave it 
ambiguous. And in a way, they can be credited for that, too. But I think this story demands so much more in terms of an explanation. And one, I tell you, I guarantee you a line would tear down the house if he said, well, yeah, I knew you were a man all along. Look how tall you are, because I don't know how this person got cast. Because <laughs> this I had the exact is, same thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My God. I mean, in football, we had somebody called Too Tall Jones. Well, here we have Too Tall Jerry. I mean, amazingly tall. And, um, of course, it's easy to say, well, Robert Morse, when he played uh, the part originally way back 50 years ago, suddenly, um, was a short man and um, seemed very much um, in in line with people who were um, that <laughs> of that height in uh, those days uh, for women. So... So that was something I just um, thought was um, very, very surprising from the first moment. What's interesting is we're not having non-traditional casting here because indeed, um, yes, Christian Ball is is uh, white and indeed uh, Jay Harrison Gee is uh, black. But notice in the lyric of a song called We're Two of a Kind, if you're colorblind, if you're colorblind, yeah, we're two of a kind if you're colorblind. So this is not non-traditional casting. They're acknowledging that uh, Jay Harrison Gee is black, and indeed, Sweet Sue is black, and that's acknowledged as well, because Sweet Sue has a line talking about um, something about, like, at a time when we're going through a depression, prohibition, and racial discrimination. That's brought up as well. So this is not non-traditional casting, but that brings up another problem because as they're traveling, mm. <laughs> Michael agrees, as they're traveling, you know, they're going from Chicago and they're going to California. And I, yeah, I'll grant you that um, going that way, they can avoid the solid South. But still, the idea that they seem to be having no problem with sugar, who's also black, Getting into hotel rooms um, seems to me uh, quite questionable at the time. So there were a few out-of-period things in terms of um, lines. I hear the line, saving our ass. I heard the line, get get a room, you know, for people who are in love. You know, that that struck me as way out of period. I I thought it was more fun in the movie when Sugar was, um, had a type of innocence. Um, Not here. Not here. Um, this is a, 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 a smarter person, somebody who's been around, somebody who knows the score. And um, okay, you know, it's it's you can you can justify that by saying, hey, she's in show business, she's been around, so on and so forth. And uh, no quarrel with Adriana Hicks playing the role, um, no problem at all. But um, I, I I guess that was made to make it a little more au courant. Uh, that could very well be, but. Um, I, I enjoyed very much more um, the innocent interpretation that Marilyn Monroe gave. So there's a very strange thing early on with um, how they get the job. Well, it's established that the usual Saxon bass players who um, were part of Sweet Sue's um, band uh, had their instruments taken from them and tossed into the river. We later find out that uh, Jerry and Joe did that. So they show up, and I would think there'd be at least some negotiation when somebody said, um, listen, uh, can we buy your instruments? You know, because they don't know who these people are. They don't know if they can play a note. I mean, mm-hmm. so I think that that should have been come up at least, you know. Um, uh, listen, we'll get – and no, 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 we couldn't. Uh, this, is, this is my grandfather's bass fiddle. You know, all that stuff would mm-hmm. really um, help tremendously. So um, 
So there's a, a nice idea of Sweet Sue increasingly needling Joe um, uh, about his age. That's a running joke, and I think it works okay. Um, but uh, what we have here is old situations, new complications. Um, I haven't mentioned the score. Um, I have to say that I did hear what somebody online said that the title song does sound like the Huckleberry Hound theme. Mm. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I know that I, I don't, I don't know if it would have occurred to me had I not read that. I'll be fair about that. But, um, and I wasn't looking for it. I really wasn't. But once I started hearing it, it, it came back to me in that way. Um, I think the songs are, are, are fine, but um, I'm reminded of what uh, Walter Kerr said about um, Happy Hunting, that there were no showstoppers. There are showstoppers for much of the uh, populace, and maybe there'll be showstoppers for our listeners out there. But I'm afraid for me, the show never stopped, not once, not in the best sense of the word, but it did stop in the worst sense of the word. Okay, Michael, what did you think? This show reminded me of all things of the tv series hollywood um that they both do something that i just do not understand and that thing that they do is that at the same time they want to sort of recreate the situation the way it actually was in real life in 1933 in terms of uh racism and uh homophobia and everything like that every social um situation the way that it was at that time and then in the next moment they completely forget about all of that and break all of those rules and then in the following moment then they go back to presenting the obstacles again uh, if anyone could explain to me how that makes any sense I would really appreciate it. Uh, for what it's worth, the um, the friend that I went with and and another friend of his were walking home afterwards, and I mentioned that to them, and they both said it didn't bother me. Uh, uh, I, I I just don't get it, and and even uh, I mean I could go on and on with examples of that, but but even at the end, the the way the way this show ends is that. Jerry, I mean, as Peter mentioned, incredibly, uh, he never actually says to Osgood, I'm a man. Uh, and I guess we're supposed to think that Osgood uh, knows that, but he, he never says either that I know you're a man. Uh, but let's assume that, that that's what they're supposed to think. Uh, but also, regardless of whether that's what they're supposed to think, the way the play ends is that they are going to get married in 1933 uh -huh. to each other, uh -huh. two men, and be very, very public about it. Now, um, and not even mention that this might be a little bit of a problem. I mean, do we think that he's going to get uh, get married um, in in women's clothing and pretend to be a woman and somehow no one's going to find out. Uh, I, I, I just do not get it. Uh, do not understand that at all. Um, and uh, um, Oh, early on, uh, not early on, but at one point uh, about two thirds of the way, through um the other character joe uh in addition to his female uh 
disguise at, at, at one point, as in the movie, he pretends to be um, a, uh, a movie producer. Uh, in this case, he does it with a German accent. Uh, uh, in uh, well, actually, in the movie, I'm not sure if he was a movie producer, but he was just supposed to be a millionaire. No, no, the it was yeah, um, you know, Shell Oil. Is, Shell uh, Oil, of course, yes, and there's yeah. that song in Sugar, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, and in the movie, Tony Curtis did a Cary Grant accent very well, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I think they, I guess, they feel like nowadays Cary Grant is just not known to the, enough people to do that. Um, so. Uh, so uh so Jerry is um you know is falling in love with Sugar and at one point Daphne um says to him very very uh strictly Joe the woman who's in love with you doesn't know who you are this is even before the the conversation at the end of the show that Osgood and Daphne have in which even then they do not really uh, make it clear that he knows that that uh, Daphne is uh, is a man. So I, I, another thing that if anyone could explain to me uh, that that moment, I I I I couldn't quite believe that it was happening. Uh, why Daphne didn't think that that applied to him or her as well uh, in lying to Osgood. On uh, so I I thought the book was a shambles. Pretty much uh, I thought. There were some good ideas and some good lines. Uh, uh, interestingly, Christian Borle is credited yeah. with additional material, and I'm going to bet anything that he wrote the the, the one joke that made me laugh out loud uh, to the point where uh, it was one of those things where I laughed and then I laughed again, and mm-hmm. then the whole audience yeah. started to laugh again because you know of my, the timing of my laugh. Uh, that line was absolutely brilliant, and I will bet anything that it was uh, Christian Borle and not Matthew Lopez. Of course, I could be wrong, but anyway, uh, maybe I'll ask somebody in the cast at some point. Uh, I, I thought the book was a mess, and and not, and a lot of it was not even terribly funny. And yes, unfortunately, the songs are so generic and so pastiche. I I mean, I really love Hairspray. Uh, I, yeah, me too. You know, I I just love that score, and uh, and although the, the the style of all the songs in that is is so familiar, um, it didn't strike me that there were any that were just like really too close to actual songs for comfort. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it could just mm-hmm. be that I, I don't. It could just be that I don't know that kind of music as well as I know uh-huh. uh, the kind of music uh-huh. that's that's being pastiched here. Um, but uh, and I on, and for what it's worth, I also uh, really like the Shaman and Whit- Whitman's work for Mary Poppins Returns. Um, so those are two pastiche scores of theirs that I really like. But here, I just think the songs are so 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 generic, uh, and the ones um, many of the songs really really remind you of other songs, either in terms of the melodies and or just the the. Um, the the general concept and styles of the song for example there's a uh, a number in act 1 called california bound uh that the ensemble sings and that reminded me of uh two songs that i could think of off getting out of town from 42nd street and also sun on my face from the <laughs> from the original uh from mm-hmm. sugar and then there was a song uh 
in uh, act two, I think of, of some like it called let's be bad, which really, really reminded me of let's misbehave. Uh, so those are two, but then, uh, yeah, I mean, this is really unfortunate. The Huckleberry hound thing, uh, I saw somebody write about that online weeks ago before I had seen the show and I went and checked it out there and I, and you know, it's really, it's really, really, really close. If you, if you hum the Huckleberry Hound theme slowly, it would be da, 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 and some like it hot is da 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 so it's really the same melody with some more notes in it and i guess maybe nobody noticed that um or thought it was a problem but i i was very very surprised by how disappointed by the show i was i have to mention as peter did that i seem to be in the vast minority in terms of the audience reaction uh everyone around me oh, that's fair crazy. yeah we should say that yeah 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 well, i think you uh, i think you indicated that and then also well, oh, it, yeah go on it, it it's um it's often been said um since the show started previews that a lot of people are responding to the fact that it looks like a, a broadway musical of years ago and there isn't still an audience maybe not a profound audience. I'm not saying that, but there is still an audience that likes a Broadway musical that looks like a Broadway musical of years ago. And um, I've had friends who have said, look, I know it's not top notch, but it was just so great to see a musical of that style. So um, I, I, I guess that's looking at the glasses half full in a way that I can't. Um, mm. I, that, that wasn't enough for me that, that it resembled a show of yesteryear. Um, it, 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 it has to be good, too. Yeah, same here. So I, I, I guess I've said enough. Uh, um, I'm sure many people will disagree with me, but that that was my experience at Some Like It Hot. So um, I, I didn't dislike it. Uh huh. Good. But I, um, maybe you know, with all the word of mouth and and. Bravo's here and there, everybody talking about how great it is. I was a little bit underwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved some of the performances, but I also felt like uh, the the style and genre of this show with just a, a couple of lines and then a song, a couple of lines and a song, it just wasn't for me. It wasn't my favorite thing. I ran into Janet Je- Tessa Fox at the theater <clears throat> excuse me and uh she was um she was enjoying it much more than oh, good. than i than i uh would when we talked at intermission uh i didn't speak to her after the show but uh i said maybe this just isn't my thing but i i thought christian Bohr was hysterical yes uh it's just really wonderful had such a great cast uh i you know, it's funny what you say about the inconsistencies, Michael, and that your friends were like, it didn't bother me. That didn't bother me either. And certainly they were, you know, uh, they were tremendous inconsistencies. Can, and, you, it, can you explain in a nutshell why it doesn't bother you that from moment to moment, the rules change as to what the challenges were and what was accepted then and what wasn't? Because it's comedy and it's not drama. 
Okay, I, but, I, I, but I think it still has to, for me, it still has to be logical within within the framework of yeah. the show itself. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally was like, you know, uh, whether it be the South or the West or whatever, I mean, America is just racist, whether it was whether it was uh, today, 2022 or, you know, back in the 40s and 50s. Or and in 1933, like it was in, in terms of the laws as well as the attitudes. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> which yeah, is the yeah. which is the main point that yeah. I'm making. Yeah, I you know I had uh, it. It doesn't bother me, but I I often wonder. You know, I'm Italian, and two of you are Italian, <laughs> and every time you see an Italian on stage, they're a mafia guy. Mm. And that's a good, good point. <laughs> and you know, I I don't take offense to that, and I laugh about it a lot. But I I think that uh, that. It, it doesn't show Italians in the in the best light, uh, and the, the, these were murderers. <laughs> Though the mafia guy in this one did have another one of the funniest lines in the show. At the, oh, he did his, his exit line, which his, uh, again, oh my god, I, I'm going to see if I can was... find out if uh, if that was Christian. Who oh, you it. think that was the line that Christian wrote? Oh so, no, there yeah. was another one, but that but that one too, I, to me that I wouldn't be surprised if he wrote all the really funny lines. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I uh, I think that there is a lot of entertainment in some like it hot. Is it the you know the best structured show in the world? No, mm. it, you know, but I think I, I don't want to blow that last line, so I'm not going to repeat it here. But it was 100 percent true. It was, <laughs> you know, it, oh, the, was, the, 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 the final line. That's Palazzo's line. Yes, Spats, yeah, Spats yeah. final line. It, it's yeah. totally, totally true. <laughs> uh, yes. I, I mean, just what an amazing, amazing cast. And I uh, have, I, I might have missed it before. Have you guys talked about the musicians? I mean, just some, uh, you know, the orchestra, uh, the, mm. the, the actors were faking the it on stage. The orchestra was really, really amazing. I was like, I was thinking in my mind that uh, we probably haven't had that kind of brass since uh, City of Angels. Mm -hmm. uh, That's fair. It just, uh, I mean, this was a great, fun evening. Was it groundbreaking theater? No, but we have other shows that are going to be groundbreaking theater. So uh, that was my thoughts on sure. Some Like It Hot. So, uh, talk about <laughs> groundbreaking theater. I don't know, Peter, you tell me. You got down to New York Theater Workshop to see Merrily We Roll Along, one of the hottest tickets in New York right now. Hotter than the Music Man. Uh, <laughs> hotter than Some Like It Hot. Um, so, tell us what you thought about this uh is it a, would you call it a revisal or what do you think about this production? Well, it's been revised many times and you, know, you really have to give Sondheim and Judge Firth real credit for um, not saying uh, uh, after November 28th, 1981, the hell with it. It was a misfire. Yeah. You know, you know they, they still felt that they had something there. So they went back, they, you know, and dropped the opening and closing scenes. Um, Eliminated the song and added a few um, and came up with, I, I have to say, I really think this show, seriously, you'll never hear this from anybody else, but I really do believe, okay, hate me is fine, a masterpiece. 
I truly believe that. I think it succeeds on every level that it wants to, uh, that it aims for. And uh, information is positioned so carefully throughout the show to have it pay off later. There's a chance remark in the, in the party scene um, that start, essentially starts the show. Essentially, I'll go back on that in a minute but essentially starts the show. Just a chance remark that you you should hear because if if you don't hear it, um, it, it won't make as much of an impression when it comes up much later in the show. There's a lot of that. There are a lot, I think these things are calibrated so wonderfully in terms of putting information in the payoff later. So I think it's very skillful in that way. And I think George Firth deserves a lot of credit for that. So, um, Years ago, I saw a production of 47th Street. I don't remember who did it, um, but it started in a way that is similar to what is happening now. And I'm not saying Maria Friedman was there or anything like that. I'm not saying that. But frankly, what I saw on 47th Street was even more effective. Let me start with what happens here. You know, originally, Franklin Shepard came back to his... Um, alma mater and he gave a speech and um essentially was saying greed is good but that's another story anyway <laughs> he um yeah so there he is he's a big shot you know and he and and in the next scene he's a big shot as well okay so it's not very um easy to like him now what maria friedman has happened is we don't even notice that he comes on. Suddenly there's Jonathan Groff walking on far upstage and walking very morosely, very morosely. And by the way, this also short circuits uh, entrance applause, which is not the only show we'll talk about the short circuits entrance applause this week, but he comes in and he looks miserable. He is so unhappy to, to be frank. The show um, at 47th Street years ago did it even better because they had him come to the lip of the stage and you heard the wind blowing and you got the impression he was just about to commit suicide. To be frank, is that it? <laughs> um, no, it really wasn't. It really wasn't. Good mm-hmm. point. Um, so so that was even more effective saying, whoa, whoa, let's bring this guy to the point where he wants to commit suicide here. Indeed, there is a point where um, Franklin Shepard does say, I wish it were over. Um, but it was even more dramatic on 47th Street. And I, I don't remember the name of the organization. I don't remember when it was. I hope somebody is listening to say, oh, God, somebody appreciated our production. But um, anyway, I thought it was a smart move. And it's a smart move here. And by the way, if we don't give entrance applause to uh, Jonathan Groff, we can't give it to Daniel Radcliffe or Lindsay Mendez. That wouldn't be fair. That'd be playing favorites. So, so nobody gets entrance applause. What I found very interesting about this production too was the audience i didn't hear one whoa i didn't hear anybody's um scream halfway through a held note because nobody was holding a held note <laughs> at the end of the first section of franklin shepherd inc you know it's interrupted you know he's he you, you uh, 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 an audience that doesn't know the show might think the song was over and might applaud nobody applauded this audience came in knowing this show and appreciating the show from certainly other productions of the cast album. 
It's another one of those shows that uh, had there not been a cast album, there almost wasn't. If there not been a cast album, people wouldn't be as interested, just as they wouldn't be as interested if it had limped through 193 performances. Mm-hmm. If the day after the reviews came out, Hal Prince greeted everybody and said, we're going to fight. And the artist goes, yeah. And the cast goes, yay, and all that stuff. And then um, they just throw a lot of good money after bad. And uh, the fact that they closed in two weeks, you don't want us. Okay, we'll go away. That's fine. Yep. Uh, has made it um, have a mystique that it wouldn't have had if it had um, run um, limply the way Merlin did or some of those other shows. So, um, so Jonathan Groff's terrific. And there's a wonderful moment when um, Beth sings Not a Day Goes By um, in the first act. And um, he rushes over to her and hugs her. You know, that's so smart. Because it's not a case that he loves her less, it's that he loves Gussie more. Yeah, it's not that he now hates her. It's not now that he's discarding her. He has mixed feelings. Mm-hmm. A lot of people do. Yeah, I mean, when when they're in a relationship and they want to get out of it, and, uh, they they go back and forth and back and forth. It was smart to show that. That's a very good move. So um, I like that quite a bit. Um very interesting, too, that when the show originally um, was produced in 81, that the movie that Frank had produced that we hear about in the first scene, uh, everybody probably was saying stunk. And since the revisal, everybody's saying um, it's terrific. And that's a metaphor for what's happened to this show. Um, granted, uh, the fact that they're saying it's terrific means that it's going to be a box office bonanza more than it's a quality picture. And that's part of the issue here. And I do believe that it's one of the reasons, despite my saying it's a masterpiece, the Merrily Roll Along will never, 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 never succeed with the general public because I don't think they can really tie into what's, um, what some of the problems are. Um, the scene in the second act where uh, they're invited, uh, Frank and Charlie, songwriters are invited to a party and they're to sing their new song from their new show, uh, Good Thing Going. Um, and they finish and everybody's crazy for it. And uh, Gussie, the hostess, says, do it again. And Charlie doesn't want to. And Frank says, oh, yeah, let's do it. Then people don't pay attention the second time around. Yeah, I, I suspect that's something that either happened to Sondheim or he saw it happen to Sondheim uh, or Sondheim saw it happen at a party. And uh, But that's not something people can relate to. The, the time has sort of passed by the Bobby and Jackie and Jack number, uh, a number that's hellishly clever about this, the Kennedys. But I don't think uh, many audiences today will get the joke about Captain Major Sergeant. Sergeant mm-hmm. represents Sergeant Shriver, um, mm-hmm. who was even the mm-hmm. vice presidential nominee of 1972. But I don't think he's much remembered. So I think that's a problem as well. So a lot of the problems are not problems that uh, the average person um, can relate to. So I would think this would be much better as a roundabout limited engagement, um, uh, a signature limited engagement. Uh, well, all right, you want to go to Broadway, fine. So uh, go to Studio 54, you know, run six, eight weeks uh, to capacity audiences. But I don't see this getting um, eight performances a week with with sellout houses. Um, sure, I mean, this is a 180-seat theater. And yes, you know, coming out of the matinee, I'm telling you, this, uh, it was, what, 5.30, um, 4.30, 4.30, I guess, yeah, 4.40, 4, 4.50. The line was already there. People, you know, I mentioned that uh, my girlfriend's brother um, stood in line for three hours and didn't get in, you know, so... Uh, that's one thing for a 180-seat theater, but um, yeah, I don't know what theater they're going to, but um, I, I, I hope that it's going to be a playhouse-type theater, meaning like 
the uh, Schoenfeld and the Jacobs, as opposed to a Broadway uh, musical theater like the Broadway, um, because I really don't think they're going to uh, have an easy time selling tickets eight a week. Daniel Radcliffe's wonderful in one of the most difficult numbers um, of all time. Um, <laughs> um, Franklin Shepard Inks makes Getting Married Today look like Old Man River. <laughs> um, and um, Lindsay Mendez, wonderful. There's a very uh, clever move to show that she's um, interested in Frank in a much more more um, uh, active way than um, than we've been led to believe, um, because um, in the in the nightclub sequence deep in the show, uh, when he puts his when Franklin puts his arm around Beth, she removes it, um, and um, it's 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 an indication that she still thinks she's in the ball game and she has a chance. So um, so I thought that was a very uh, telling detail. Uh, she's always wonderful. I have loved her since she did that show with Sherry Renee Scott um, when she was a backup person, seeming so deliciously delightful and, and uh, happy to be there. And uh, I'm delighted with her success. And she certainly um, doesn't uh, disappoint me here. And um, I, I tell you, Daniel Radcliffe, uh, one thing that occurred to me, I wish Al Hirschfeld was still around because I would love to see him draw uh, his eyebrows. It would have really been great there. So, um, so um, uh, it's, 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 I, I had a wonderful time. I, I didn't flag for a second as far as I was concerned. Sure. By the way, I saw the production of the Huntington uh, Theater a few years ago, which is uh, this production, but with different people in it. So, um, so I do wish it well. I really do. But um, I do think that uh, Merrily's success may be limited uh, just by the very nature of what it is. But as, as, a, as a musical theater piece, I'll stand by my masterpiece. And I know nobody is going to go that far. Um, but I see things in it that, um, that I really, really enjoy. And uh, I wish it well. And we'll see if anybody even knows what Sputnik is anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so that uh the sherry renee scott there was the everyday rapture was that the one yeah 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 so uh merrily michael is gonna see it ne next week michael is it 28th uh so the week after next yeah. uh and then uh we'll get back and talk about it again uh, it's interesting i hadn't even thought about the ability to fill a theater and sell tickets uh there's because it's such an echo chamber that I, I live in that everybody's talking about how wonderful it is. Although it's the same echo chamber that told me that K-pop was going to run forever. So yeah. it might be, <laughs> um, it might be a similar situation to into the woods where it's sold out for a, a couple of months and then mm. every Sondheim freak, you know, gets to see it. And of course it does have, you know that cast and and Daniel Radcliffe will certainly help and and Jonathan Groff and Lindsay Mendez, um, but it's uh, but on the other hand, I think uh, I think it's fair to say that Merrily is not done anywhere near as often in high schools and colleges and community theaters as Into the Woods. Mm -hmm. So sure. that's another thing that that has going for it. Um, will will be interesting to see, but I, I share Peter's hope that it doesn't go into you know <laughs> somewhere like the Broadway theater. Yeah, the uh, Deb Schrager in our chat room is talking about uh, that Dan Daniel Radcliffe will fill the house alone. Uh, and uh, if not, if Daniel doesn't do it, then maybe uh, Hugh Jackman can come in. 
Hugh seems to have the ability to sell tickets. Oh, yeah. yeah really, yeah. really does. Yep, yep. So yep. the... Uh, but he's much more Franklin than Charlie. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but um, yes, uh, it would be nice to think that uh, Daniel Radcliffe would sell enough tickets. But I'll I'll say that when that Into the Woods opened, um, the faithful listeners may recall that I said, "Baby, this is the one. Finally, the Sondheim is going to get a thousand performances," mm. and um, that certainly isn't happening. Uh, Alan Teasley's mentioning in the chat room that he thought the the Hudson was announced from early. I don't remember hearing that. Do you guys? No, no, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. But no, I didn't hear that at all. Hmm. All right. So uh, that is uh, Peter's take on Merrily. And Michael and I will talk about it when we see it, uh, which reminds me that uh, next Sunday is December 25th. Uh, some folks uh, celebrate Christmas that day. And we are going to have a show released on that day, but we're going to record it on the 24th. And the morning of the 24th. Uh, so if you want to join us for that, uh, get over to uh, patreon.com slash radio, and we'll have the information there to sign up and listen to us record on Saturday morning. The following week is the first of the year, January 1st, and we will be recording the morning of January 1st. Uh, but we're going to have uh, sort of a year in review and talk about, Michael's going to talk about Merrily because he will have just seen it. And we'll see what else. But uh, if you have anything uh, that you want us to hit for the the uh, remembrance of the year that just passed of 2022, uh, let us know. And we'll see if uh, we can talk about that as well. So Michael and Peter got over to the James Earl Jones Theater to see Ohio State Murders. So, Michael, why don't you get us started on this? Yeah, you know, I, I should have said at the start of the podcast, I have to apologize because I'm, I'm going to be so negative this week. <laughs> um, I, I really did not like this play. Uh, I thought it was strangely boring uh, for much of it. And that amazed me considering the title. Uh, but there again, um, uh, I, I think the title is um, somewhat misleading because when I heard Ohio State murders, I, I just assumed it meant some kind of a mass shooting on the Ohio State campus, but that's not what it's about. And I don't think the title really um, is an accurate indication of, of what the subject matter is going to turn out to be. So I, I won't say any more, because obviously uh, spoilers are involved, but that but that is what I thought. Um, I will confess. Uh, I, I suppose you can. Uh, I'll cheerfully say it's my own ignorance. I was all completely unaware of Adrian Kennedy um, before uh, this play opened, and I started to read up on her. And uh, but uh, then when I did begin to read up on her, I w- was not surprised that I that I was so ignorant of her because it, it said that she is a, a basically a, a a very prominent figure of avant-garde theater and you know again it, it could be just my own shortcoming or failing but I, i've never really responded especially to avant-garde theater uh and so i had never seen any of her previous works and i was completely unfamiliar with her but also um you know i mean i, I to me I'm thinking maybe that explains why she has not been on Broadway till now 
more than the fact uh, or as much as the fact maybe that she was a black woman uh, because needless to say uh, the, the, the box office record of avant-garde theater on Broadway is not, not great. Uh, but anyway, um, when I walked into the theater, uh, I was uh, surprised to hear a, a recording of an interview. And um, when I saw the show, I, uh, you know, maybe I missed it, but uh, I, 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 or maybe just my playbill didn't get one, but uh, apparently there was, um, an insert in the playbill explaining that it was an, an interview of Adrian Kennedy, um, in, in you know in, in I guess maybe fairly recent years, um, so I didn't know that, but it but I eventually figured it out. Uh, but before I figured it out, I thought I was listening and trying to figure out who that was, and of all people, it sounded like Liza Minnelli to me, because. <laughs> To me, she has a very, very, very affected way of speaking. Um, uh, there's no other way for me to describe it. And, and it really sounded like Liza to me. Uh, so it took me a while to figure out that that's, that's who it was. And I assume that that is why in the play, Audrey McDonald, who is playing a fictional, uh, a highly fictionalized version of Adrian Kennedy, why she speaks in a very affected way throughout the play. And that was also a huge turnoff to me. Um, I thought there were some very uh, effective and gripping moments in it, uh, especially, for example, where um, that character uh, talks about how she is unable to major in English at Ohio State, because, and this is a historical fact, uh, black people were not allowed to at the time because it says uh, literally something like it, it was thought that they could not handle the curriculum. I mean, that's pretty shocking. And I think that's something that theater is good for to give us uh, historical nuggets like that, uh, which we might not find out just by reading history um so that that was really kind of shocking uh and it's about basically what the show is about is how she uh this character suzanne alexander attends ohio state and she winds up um becoming involved with one of her white professors played very well uh by bryce pinkham um though he doesn't have that much to do this uh play is almost um almost a mm-hmm. monologue uh the the suzanne alexander character has the lion's share of the lines um even though there is also bryce pinkham as robert hampshire and then other roles played by lizanne mitchell and mr fitzgerald and abigail stevenson um so i uh thought that uh again there were interesting things in it, but somehow um, it it made the story quite boring to me um, until the very end when um, the murders happen. And as I said, it, it's not what you might think from the title. Um, so that was that was my experience uh, directed by Kenny Leon uh, fairly well, I guess uh, this um, play had been done previously at the Goodman and. 2021 and uh i i found it interesting to read that in that production they had a a, another actress um uh, as young suzanne so there were two 
actresses playing Suzanne uh, in that production. Um, so, uh, but I, I guess they weren't going to do that here because they wanted to make it a tour de force for Audra. And uh, I'm sure many people think that that's what it is, but I, I just did not like the, the material and uh, I didn't respond to the material for the reasons I said. And also I, I, although I understand her reasons for speaking in that highly, highly affected way, I, I found it quite a turnoff. Okay. Peter, what'd you think? Actually, this is not the first New York production. It was uh, done in 2007. Um, Theater for a New Audience did it. Oh, that's and, right. I saw that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I didn't see it. I, yeah, I, I read that. that read, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Um, and um, it only lasted two weeks. And uh, it, too, used two actresses to play Suzanne Alexander. Mm. Um, not, by the way, Susan Alexander, as we would know from Citizen Kane. But <laughs> um, anyway, um, so... Um, I was, uh, pretty gripped. Um, can you say defense mechanism? That's what made it fascinating to me. Here's Audrey McDonald telling this terrible, terrible, terrible story. Much of the time with a big smile on her face. And, um, it, it does show a way of somebody coping through one setback after another. And that's what this character endures. Uh, first, as Michael said, the, um, the racism that, um, was a problem for her in college. Uh, then something worse happens to her, then something worse, and then something worse. And the way she's dealing with it much of the time is with a smile indicating, well, uh, uh, that's what life is. It's, it certainly shows she doesn't know how to handle it any other way. She doesn't know what to do. And I found that uh, pretty interesting. I didn't see it in 2007, by the way. So it was new to me, but I, um, but anyway, um, yes, it is virtually a monologue. Yes. It's virtually a one person show. Um, but, um, I was pretty gripped because even though, I, too, assumed Ohio State murders was something like the Kent State murders, not that far away, that it was a mass shooting or something like that. When you come right down to it, what happens here may be equally as horrible, even if it doesn't involve that many murders. And I put that in quotation marks, that many murders, because one murderer, God knows, is too much. But, But nevertheless, I was pretty, pretty amazed at what these murders turned out to be why they were committed, how they were committed. The rationale behind them was something that I could not begin to fathom as as an ultimate solution. Let me put it that way. I understand that people do crazy things, but I didn't... I mean, obviously, the guy who did the murders was, was crazy, no question. Um, and until you see the show, you won't even begin to believe how crazy he was. Um, but indeed it it was pretty harrowing for me. And I think that's what was effective for me. The fact that I went in expecting to hear about 20, 30 people killed and I didn't hear about nearly that many. And yet I was as horrified as I would have been if indeed I had heard about 20 or 30 people killed. And perhaps that's why she purposely titled it that way. There's also a shaggy dog equivalent, by the way. I mean, because the last line of the play, by the time you get to the last line of the play, mm-hmm. you may very well, I did, have forgotten uh, why this story was told. But 
it's a very effective last line. Very effective. And um, Audra's magnificent. Magnificent. And um, God love her for wanting to do this, taking on this enormous task. So uh, I'm pretty impressed by it. Granted, it's not a long show. Um, They say 75 minutes. I don't even think it's that long. Um, But but still, it's it's quite a thing to have to do, especially on matinee days. So uh, so again, um, Audrey McDonald shows what a great performer she is. And I've told this story before, but when she was nominated for her fourth Tony, um, I, I said, do you think you'll win? She said, I don't think anybody thinks I'll, I need another Tony. So, um, well, she's had two more and she might even have another one now this time. It's not impossible. Not impossible at all. She's that wonderful. I guess I should say that even though I didn't like the interpretation, I agree that it's an incredibly impressive performance. Mm-hmm. Also impressive that in the middle of the run, she did that incredible concert at Carnegie Hall that I saw. <laughs> uh huh. Right. <clears throat> you know. I remember that. <laughs> All right. So that's Ohio State Murders. I almost said the Ohio State Murders. I know. Yes. <laughs> just stuck in my vernacular. There. No, no, no. I, so it's Ohio State Murders at the James Earl Jones through February twelfth, twenty twenty three. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, the theater itself is worth a visit. Yes. Um, now there's there's um, a new uh, addition that's uh, quite lovely. Hmm. So uh, last Monday, I got over to the Broadhurst where the Entertainment Community Funds uh, had a be- benefit concert of chess. It's just a one night only thing that uh, rumors are that this was kind of dipping their toe in the water to see if uh, this this particular production could come to Broadway. Um, and I, I feel like chess is like, uh, like one of your exes, you know, the more, dis- <laughs> the, the more distance you have from it, the more fond you think of it. And you're like, oh, we should get back together. We should get back together. And then I was sitting there in the theater on Monday night and I was like, now I know why we broke up. <laughs> uh, it's such a disaster. The book. <laughs> Yeah, but again, but you just, you know, just (laughs) specify it's a new book. Oh, yeah, but I, it's sort of a new book. It's, uh, Mm. it's, it's new language laid on top of the book. Right. And there's uh, the, you know, you just talked about Bryce Pinkham in the, uh, in Ohio State Murders. Well, he was the arbiter slash narrator for this concert. Bryce Pinkham is so so funny yeah he's like he's like christian borel funny mm-hmm. um, yeah, well not in the highest state murders but <laughs> no no yeah yeah <laughs> but um very very funny i really in- enjoyed a lot of the performances here uh lena hall was florence uh vassi uh, ramin karamlu was anatoly solea fifa was svetlana um just uh it's incredible incredible performances but darren chris's freddie was kind of a disaster yeah. uh and if they're to thinking of even considering bringing this to broadway they have to replace darren um and that's very sad because i'm a big fan of darren chris and uh but this is just not his role uh and so I, you know, I'm trying to think of who, uh, you know, could play Freddie and 
Bryce. Uh, Bryce, uh, Lena, Lena Hall. <laughs> Lena Hall would be an amazing Freddy. And, uh, and they could rethink this whole chess thing. But still, the book is a disaster. I think that it would be foolish to bring this particular production to Broadway. Uh, but it was a lot of fun to hear the music again. And uh, it's nice to see an old friend and say goodbye at the end of the night. <laughs> so that was a one night only concert uh, for the Entertainment Community Fund, which is formerly the Actors Fund. And uh, Stokes came out and gave a, a, a little welcome at the top of the show and talked about <laughs> the Entertainment Community Fund. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, can't he just sing something right now? You know, it's such a shame to have Brian Soakes Mitchell on a stage with a full audience and an orchestra behind him, and he doesn't sing. So, <laughs> so um, that was well, chess. Yeah, chess. Uh, I tell you, it does get done. It's it's the first show I ever saw on three different continents: mm -hmm. um, Europe, North America, and Australia. So uh, everybody tries. Yeah. All right. So, um, Michael, you got over to Lincoln Center's Clairetel Theater to see your own personal exegesis, 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 <laughs> something like that. Farfag Nugan. Um, so, Michael, tell us about this. Exegesis, which means, and I just had to look it up, <laughs> critical explanation or interpretation of a text, especially of scripture. Uh, and this is a play uh, at the Claire Tau, which I, I think maybe I finally learned that that's the pronunciation of Tau. Uh, hopefully I'll remember. A new play by Julia May Jonas, directed by Annie Tip. And it's set in a, um, uh, in a, a parish uh, in New Jersey in 1996. And it's about um, this youth group uh, run by a female reverend. Uh, played by Hannah Cabell, C-A-B-E-L-L, -L, uh, and the, the reverend's name is Kat, K-A-T. And um, she, uh, among other things, she and uh, this youth group, they're, they're putting on a show, and the show they're putting on is um, a version of David and Bathsheba, uh, which happens to be, uh, I guess, one of the few really sexy stories from the Bible. And that's going to turn out to be significant because what eventually happens is that cat uh, winds up having an affair with one of the young people uh, uh, played by Cole Doman. And that character's name is Chris. So it's about um, that, that affair and, and how it comes to light and also uh, the relationships of the other young people uh, with um with the reverend and and with chris and uh i i enjoyed a lot of it some very very funny lines um and uh but i did think it was um not stylistically very cohesive because it seemed like uh many of the scenes were very quote-unquote realistic and others were not and i couldn't tell for sure which uh which reality we were supposed to be in from from one scene to the next, but um, but I I it, you know it certainly held my interest and uh, some really 
talented performance in there, especially the two that I that I mentioned, um, Hannah Cavill, C-A-B-E-L-L, I hope that's how you pronounce that, and Cole Doman, uh, also in it, Mia Pak, Savidu Jivaratne, and Annie Fang. Um, and I haven't seen a whole lot of shows at the Tau, but um seems like the, the few that I have seen there have all been really worthwhile. So I applaud, uh, you know, Lincoln Center Theater for adding that third theater when they did. Um, and, uh, and it's, um, I, I'm going to try to get to see more there because as I say, everything I I've seen there has been quite worthwhile. Don't get stuck in the elevator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is an issue. You, there's only, <laughs> the only access is by elevator. You cannot walk even if you want to. Uh, so that's a little unfortunate. All right. Uh, Peter, you were downstairs uh, at Lincoln Center Theater. I wonder if you were at the same day uh-huh. when you saw uh, Becky Nurse of Salem uh, at the new house in the basement of Lincoln Center Theater. So uh, no elevator for you, but tell us what you thought about <laughs> Becky. Uh, this is Sarah Rule's new play, and I have a feeling that I, I have a different reading on it than most people will have. So... Uh, it, it, it deals with a woman who is a, a descendant of Rebecca Nurse, uh, who um, was one of the uh, people accused way back when of being a Salem witch and executed. So, um, not unlike Kimberly Akimbo, um, Becky is uh, somebody who uh, is not afraid to skirt outside the law. Uh, she she works in a museum, uh, and she is rather crass in the way that she delivers the material using some four-letter words. So she gets fired. So in retribution, she steals one of the wax um, mannequin figures um, and thinks nothing of it. Well, they catch her, and uh, they bring the statue back, but she isn't through. She steals it again. Uh, so I'm I'm not really crazy about this uh, crazy woman uh, because I, I don't feel that um, two wrongs make a right and that she should be doing this even though she was fired. So, but what does happen is um, she gets into trouble with the law, not just because of that, but because of something else too. And it really looks like she is facing tremendous time in prison. So she gets before the judge and the I'm giving away the ending, but I really want to make this point. The judge goes easy on her. Very easy, in fact. More easy than she really deserves. But he does go easy on her. And what I'm taking from this play, and again, Sarah Rule may say, how could you possibly come to that conclusion? (laughs) But what I take from this play is that while women were treated terribly during the Salem witch trials, um, and certainly were executed. Now, um, wrongdoings are considered um, are to be considered more leniently. That um, that she isn't going to be punished nearly as severely as her forebear was. So things are getting better for women. That's the best I can do with this play. And again, if she tells me no, this is a play about a woman who really wants to be lieutenant governor of Vermont, I'll say okay, you know. But this is what I took from it. <laughs> so that's the best I can do. Um, Deirdre O'Connell, wonderful, of course, of course, of course. So is the supporting cast. So um, very nice production. Very nice indeed. Always fun to sit in the new house theater. Uh, nice intimate space with stadium seating. Um, 
but um, I won't be surprised if you come away with a very different feeling from the one I had. Okay. So Becky Nurse of Salem is playing at the new house through December 31st. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. So uh, there's only, you know, about two weeks left there, less than two weeks then of that run. So I don't think you really spoiled it for many people. Oh, I <laughs> uh, finally, for this morning, Michael, you were over at 59 East 59 to see Ye Bear and Ye Cub. What is this about? <laughs> Well, first of all, when I read the title, I, I was thinking, well, maybe you're supposed to say the bear and the cub because it's, you know, how in, in old style writing, mm. uh, they used to write the as it looked yeah. like ye. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and that is basically what it is, except that, you know, they that's part of the discussion in the play as to whether it's ye bear and ye cub or the bear and the cub. And they get actually some laughs out of that. Uh, I'm this, glad it's I'm glad it's not about Kanye. I was just going to make that statement. <laughs> well, that, just that all, to make that statement. <laughs> that, yeah, that also <laughs> occurred to me, but no, no. Um, I hope that's Good. not too disappointing. Um, yeah, uh, this was written, uh, the, the, this play was apparently written by committee because uh, it says by number 11 productions. Uh, that's the name of the production company. And it says number 11 writing team, uh, Ryan Buchanan, Julie Congress, Stephen Conroy, Ryan Emmons, Zachary Fithian, and Forrest Van Dyke. Um, at least one or two of those people who are in the play. And it's a, a really kind of interesting uh, um, concept because uh, let me just read what it says in the press release. Setting Folks Tavern, the Colony of Virginia, 1665. Inspired by a dream and a few drinks, a ragtag troop of amateur thespians put on a play. A bear waxes poetic, a cannon explodes, and the American theater is born. Based on historical court records, number 11 productions, brand new play, Ye Bear and Ye Cub, drops the fourth wall, immersing audiences in a colonial tavern for a high-octane reimagining of the first known English language play in North America and the trial it ignites. So it's a kind of a fanciful little play about this uh, this actual play uh but which unfortunately does not survive but the 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 most interesting thing here is that uh, um what did happen is this this play was produced as they said and then someone sued the people producing it because it was basically someone who hated theater uh, <laughs> considered it immoral and blah 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 and also maybe had a uh, you know a, a personal axe or two to grind he sued um them uh but they won the case and so they were they uh they didn't have to pay any damages and i guess they were able to continue doing it so uh at, at the point is made in the play that if that lawsuit hadn't happened uh no one would e- ever know about this uh and even though the text is lost uh you know it, it goes on record as 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 they said the first known english language play in north america which is obviously very significant um i thought much of it was very um very interesting the cast is very talented Stephen Conroy, Amara J. Brady, Joseph Medeiros, aforementioned Julie Congress, mm-hmm. Anthony Michael Martinez, Aaron Lamar. Um, but uh, 
I thought uh, I thought it maybe would have been better if it hadn't been written by committee because that um, did not work out so well. Uh, one, one flaw that I noticed was it seemed like all of the characters had a monologue at one point or another, but it was very inconsistent uh, because, for example, at one point, uh, the Cornelius Watkinson character had a monologue about his character, but then at, at another point, one of the other uh, a- actors did a monologue that seemed to be about the actor's own experience uh, hmm. and completely outside of the play. Uh, so I don't know what that was about, uh, and I don't know why they decided to do that. And I think it would have been better if it had been a little more focused. And uh, maybe people could have contributed to it, but then someone uh, could have had charge of of editing it. I mean, but I suppose maybe that did happen. But uh, I I I thought that it was not very cohesive, um, even though it had a lot of interesting stuff in it. Uh, it continues through December twenty third at fifty nine East fifty nine. So if you want to check it out, it's in the smallest theater, the one at the very top. I think it's called Theater C. Uh, so it's quite a, an intimate space, and um, also. Uh, uh, a fair amount of audience participation, which is another. I, I know that Peter and I don't necessarily enjoy that, and and also in this case, I would say that the audience participation was a little more strictly enforced than in some other place. Hmm. So that was another issue um, that uh, that happened. Although uh, although I have to say, I I wa- I wound up getting the biggest laugh in the show uh-huh. <laughs> because tell us. Uh, well, at one point they they have a, a the the trial scene, and the judge asked me uh, about the play, and uh, and first uh, the judge was played by a woman, but first she said, uh, "Can you tell us a little about what you just saw?" And I laughed <laughs> uh, because um, yeah. <laughs> because it was so confusing. That and then I said I laughed, and then I said I really can't tell you what I just saw. <laughs> uh, but then um, so I got that laugh. But then after that. Um, uh, well, it wasn't a laugh so much, but she said, uh, "What did you? Well, what did you think about? What do you think about this lawsuit?" And I said, "Well, I don't think the play should be censored." And so they uh, uh-huh. they went they uh, I think they were glad that I said that because then they they used that as a jumping off point. Uh, so um, that's that's Ye Bear and Ye Cub, uh, quite a unique play, I would say, with. Um, some very good performances and some very intriguing elements to it, even if I think that it uh, didn't work that well overall. Okay. So that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and our musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com. As as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. Just a reminder that uh, Broadway Radio will be coming to you all throughout the holiday season. Uh, today on Broadway, uh, we'll be uh, there if we have some sort of breaking news, but we have a lot of specials planned throughout the uh, next two weeks or so through the holiday season so that you will get your Broadway fix every day if you would like. And uh, this week on Broadway, as I mentioned before, we're going to... Uh, 
be there next Sunday on the 25th and on the first of the year as well, where we'll do our 2022 recap. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? One line in the song from Peter Pan is the same as the title of a 21st century musical. It's also the name of a short-running 1960s comedy written by two writers who were originally signed to write the book of a musical, but were replaced by someone far more accomplished. Well, I'm talking about the song I Won't Grow Up in Peter Pan, which has the lyric, Catch Me If You Can, which was the name of a 21st century musical by the um, songwriting team that did Something Like It Hot. And it was also a 1965 comedy by Jack Weinstock and Willie Gilbert, who were the first but not the final writers of how to succeed in business without really trying. Uh, This came to mind because I recently bought the apartment owned by Gilbert's daughter, Barbara. So -hmm. that's why I thought of this. Anyway, Steve Bell was the first to get it, followed by Juliet Green, Tony Janicki, modestly inching up to third place from his fifth place finish the week before. Paul Whitty, Brigadude, Mike Meany, Arthur Robinson, J. Aubrey Jones, who's still packing them in at Irish Reps, <laughs> Child's Christmas in Wales, and Greg Christensen. All right, this week's question. I feel bad about this week's question because it's murderously hard. And just this week, I learned the trivia questions by given by others are getting much easier. Mm-hmm. Maybe you got this too, but I got an email from a trivia site that actually asked, who was the first president of the United States? <laughs> mm-hmm. And it was a multiple choice question. The choices were in this order. Ready? John Adams, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, and I swear it, John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps some of you get mailings from the same site and can verify this. Well, I've always marched to a different drummer, so it's not surprising that I'm going to give a question that's much, 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 much harder. So uh, please forgive. All right, here we go. He wrote the score for one enormous hit in London and a lesser but still solid hit on Broadway. Before that well-known musical, though, he wrote the lyrics, um, music and lyrics for a review that London saw, but New York didn't. On the London cast album, you'll hear in the title song that he actually included the surname of the director who commissioned the show. Who's he? What's the show? Who's the director? And what's the lyric that includes her name? By the way, I checked, and this song with this lyric can be found on YouTube. So indeed, that should help you. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. If you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, what do we have in this week's musical moment? Well, I don't get a lot of physical CDs anymore. Uh, I get a lot of stuff as digital files. But um, two friends of ours, Dan Fortune and Robbie Roselle, recently gave me a treasure trove of of CDs, uh, most of them new um, or newish. And one of them... Is so wonderful that I had to uh, include some music f- from that. The this album is called After the Ball, uh, and it's Christine Ebersole, uh, produced by Christine and Lawrence Yerman. Uh, all of the arrangements are by Lawrence Yerman, uh, with um, very uh, modest accompaniment uh, in terms of numbers: uh, piano, cello, guitar, and banjo. And some songs I think are just um, piano uh it's a really 
interesting selection. It opens with after the ball into the way you look tonight. Um, it's got I'm old, I'm old fashioned, it's wonderful. My baby just cares for me. Uh, Autumn leaves, sleep and be, uh, and then a few other songs. Uh, but what's so notable is Christine's voice sounds absolutely gorgeous on this album. I, I guess I, I don't often get to hear her sing this kind of music full out in, in her soprano range. And I had forgotten how really, really exceptionally beautiful her voice is. So um, one of the best cuts is uh, the one that I, I chose. Uh, it's a mini medley of two songs that actually, I, I don't really think they fit together very well in terms of the lyrics. Um, it starts with Yesterdays from Roberta and then into Lazy Afternoon from The Golden Apple, uh, which, uh, I mean, Yesterdays is a very nostalgic song sung by an older character uh indeed in in the in the show uh it's a character who dies during the course of the action i believe um uh you know looking back on her youth and lost love and things like that whereas lazy afternoon is a very sexy <laughs> um song about uh, a young person uh very much in in love and lust uh with uh with someone so i i don't think they go together th- that way but she sings them so beautifully that uh that i think that you you won't mind as i didn't uh so it opens with yesterday's that was our opener and then uh into as i say into lazy afternoon which is our closer i really advise you to to check out this this album maybe you can sample it online and, and see if you think you'd like to get the whole thing uh i i just think it's absolutely fantastic All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. It's a lazy afternoon And the beetle bugs are zooming And the tulip trees are blooming And there's not another human in view But us two
come spend this 